So my talk is based on using uh, advanced Python concepts in Django, um, how it uses um, some of the more interesting things in Python to um, work its magic, as it were. Um, so a bit about me. I am the co-organizer of Django NYC. I work at a web agency called Huge, based in Brooklyn. Um, I've been working there for about a year. Um, I started using Django about two and a half years ago, um, and my Python experience was um, started then as well. I came to Python because because of Django. Um, right. Um, so one big thing is what are advanced Python concepts? Um, I would consider those to be decorators, descriptors, and meta classes, um, especially as it pertains to the way Django uses them. Um, I have the meh next to decorators, if only because uh, Django's use of decorators are kind of I don't know, it's pretty normal, nothing, nothing crazy. Um, I'm going to go over them just for the, just to be complete. Um, but it's not where the really interesting pieces of this are. Um, I would say that meta classes are probably the most interesting piece of this, um, which Django uses heavily, so it should be interesting. Um, this is what a decorator looks like. Uh, it's the orange at syntax there. Um, it seems uh, rather magical if only because it's not directly apparent what that's doing. Um, that is, it's actually a function that wraps the hello function. So it would be syntactically equivalent to calling the myDecorator function and as its only argument, passing in the hello function. Um, now that's what using a decorator looks like. This is what decorators really look like. Um, and that's a bit of a there's a lot of syntax to make a decorator, and that looks way more complicated than it is. Uh, the two comments here are the important pieces of the program. Um, you can do things before the function happens, and you can do things after the function happens. Um, and that's really where you would want to use something like a decorator. Um, for instance, Django uses decorators to detect whether you're authenticated to view a certain function, uh, to access this certain view of the website. So before the function's called, it checks to see if your user is authenticated. If it is, it just continues and basically does nothing. If you're not, it redirects you to a login page. Um, but decorators really shine when you want to do something, either mess with the parameters going into a function or the, the output that comes out of a function um, or any of those. Um, Next up are descriptors. Um, descriptors are actually uh, pretty sane. There's nothing super crazy about uh, how they work. It's basically just a class that takes a get and set method. Um, this is usually done for if you want to do something based on that behavior. For instance, if you want to pass in a comma-separated list or comma-separated values and then have it stored internally in the descriptor as a list. Um, as a Python list, um, and it's also if you want to, if you have like a complex data structure that you somehow serialize and, and stick into maybe a string, when you access it, you don't want to get back the string, you want to get back the actual complex object. Um, this is something that descriptors would be really good for. Um, this is used in Django for um, field definitions and models, uh, which we'll sh I'll show you uh, soon. Um, also, they use them for their uh, managers, which are how you um, access uh, 
data from the database. Um, um, so this is what using a descriptor looks like. Um, here, wheel set is the is the descriptor. It's basically uh, instantiated class. Um, and here you see that when you um, access it, like the get, it returns the value that you set. Um, when you try to assign something to it, it raises a not implemented error. Um, okay. So this is what descriptors really look like. Um, it's really this is a really simplistic view. Um, but when you when you instantiate it, you give it a wheels uh, variable which it stores internally. When you access it, it returns that. If you try to set something to it, it raises uh, an exception. Um, this is again a really simplistic example. The things you get access to in the get method are the instance of the class and the owner um, of the um, of the descriptor. Sorry. Um, and in the set method, you get the value you want to assign it to and the instance that you're going to, that, that the descriptor's on. Um, so an important point of this is descriptors are not only get and set methods. They are also, uh, they're just regular classes. So you can do a lot of alternate things such as, um, again, if you have this as a complex data object, you can slice and dice it any way you want, return um, interesting uh, pieces of um, data based on the data structure, uh, things like that. Okay, and then the last one of these are metaclasses. Uh, these are what, this is what a metaclass, uh, the usage of a metaclass looks like. Um, the first one is how like normal metaclasses look, and then the bottom one is um, how, what you would normally see in Django, which is you wouldn't see it at all. Um, that's because um, when you subclass uh, a class, you get its metaclass as well. Um, so, Um, the second version of this is, is a lot cleaner, um, it's in, at least in appearances. Um, it hides the fact that you're using a metaclass, which uh, makes a lot of sense if you're doing a framework. It doesn't make a ton of sense if you're going to do something that you need to maintain. Um, but in a framework where you don't want to expose that to everyone who is like, oh my god, what's a metaclass? Um, that this makes a, a lot more sense, especially from a, a, an aesthetic reason. Um, Okay, and this is what meta classes really look like. Um, they so uh, the first thing is that they inherit from type, um, not object, which is normal. Um, and then the arguments that are passed into it are the class, um, the name of the class, any base classes that it gets, along with any attributes that are assigned to it. Um, and the comments here as well: you can do things before the creation of the class, um, such as altering the attributes that are assigned to it or assigning new attributes to it um, or you can do things after the class. Um, one important point here is when you call the super you're passing in class not self because this is evaluated um, basically on import rather than on instantiation. Um, so that is a uh, an important point. Okay so let's look at how Django puts this all together. Um, when Django registers a model, it creates a meta object which, con which contains um, internal information about the class. It sets up a few internal pieces. It adds the attributes to the class, which is one of the more interesting points, and it registers the model um, and returns it. 
Okay. So first, the meta object. Um, the meta object, like I said, contains a lot of uh, meta information about the, the class. Um, it's stored as underscore meta on the, um, on the model. Um, you don't normally want to mess with things that are prefixed by underscores. Um, Yes. Yes, I do. Later. <laughs> Sorry. Um, right. Um, so you normally don't want to mess with things that are prefixed by underscores. It's denoted as like an internal thing that you shouldn't be messing with. Um, this is not necessarily the case with Meta um, in Django because a lot of their internal APIs rely on this being pretty fixed. So um, feel free to you can you can play with things in meta and not expect them to break in the next release. Um, some of the things that can be in here are you get a list of the fields that are on a, a given model. Um, you can set things like how things order by default, whether they are unique for a given date, um, any explicit naming information. Uh, Django does some magic-y things where it just like appends S's to the end of things to make them plural, but that doesn't really work for a lot of things. Uh, so you have the ability to override that. Um, and again, this has a relatively stable API, um, which, is, which is nice. Um, the next step is uh, it sets up some internals. Um, this includes setting up a few exceptions on the class itself, um, such as it does not exist and multiple objects returned, which are specific to the class. Um, and it also sets the default manager. Now these uh, one important point is that they don't inherit when using multi-table inheritance or proxy models, which if you're not using those, then it doesn't matter to you. But um, it, doesn't in, it doesn't inherit uh, the default manager always. Um, okay, so this is um, the, the, the interesting bits. Um, so adding attributes to the class. Um, when Django goes through to set an attribute onto the class, um, it detects whether it has a contribute to class method. Um, if it does, it calls that. If it doesn't, it just assigns it over. Um, every subclass of field has a contribute to class method. And this is um, one of the uses of descriptors. Um, I think where I have a... This is what a model looks like, so just so everyone can go ahead and see the, the ones that don't know. Um, here we have uh, the descriptor would be like models.carefield, um, where you're instantiating a class with some arguments. Um, so that's what the descriptor looks like. It has a get and a set method, but it also has contribute to class. And what that does is, right, um, through the use of metaclasses, um, when you, without metaclasses, sorry, let me back up, you don't have the ability to um, get where, what name something's assigned to on a class. So if I say foo is equal to this attribute, I have no clue in this attribute that foo is the name that I gave it. Um, what Django's metaclass does for base models is passes that in to the contribute to class and says, listen, field, your name is name, not slug. Um, and that way it, it, it uses that for like DB lookups, 
when it's running SyncDB, it knows what it was assigned, so it knows what to name itself. Um, and that's a that's a pretty important point of what what this does. Um, sorry. Um, right. Um, so yeah, that's that's the important point is that it, the descriptors have an idea of what their name was when they were assigned. So for for database lookup stuff. Um, also, the every field is added to the meta, the the meta object. Um, it's actually called the options object in, internally, um, and they do this so they'll stay in order. So when you create your uh, table file, uh, or I'm sorry, your SQL tables, they're in the same order as when you define them. Um, and then the third, um, or as fourth piece to this is Django then registers the model. Um, and it does this through something called the app cache, um, which is a store of all of the applications and models of those applications for your entire project. Um, both of those that are installed and those that aren't. Um, they're stored internally as a sorted dictionary, which is a data structure that comes with Django. Um, and it uses the Borg pattern, uh, design pattern. Uh, it's similar to uh, Singleton, where uh, you really only get one instance. Um, the difference is that it puts an emphasis on um, state rather than identity. So with singletons, you can only ever have one. Um, with the Borg pattern, you can have as many as you want of this object, but they all have the exact same state. So they're basically copies of the same object. Um, uh, it's actually pretty interesting and um, was written by Alex Martelli, um, who is extremely smart. Um, but you can get uh, information about that at this, at this URL, and I'll have my slides um, online after the meeting. Um, okay, so like I said, I came to Python from um, because of Django, so I don't really have a lot of experience with a lot of the other uh, frameworks, um, specifically like anything, like SQL Alchemy. Um, so this is what using creating a table in SQL Alchemy is. Um, I copied this from their tutorial session. Um, it basically uses a set of uh, instantiated classes to build your your model, basically. Um, it's very SQL oriented. Um, like you have a concept of tables and columns and um, and whatnot. Um, and just to and this is just a basic user table with uh, name and password and whatnot. Um, the Django equivalent is this. Um, so Django handles the ID um, on its own with an auto-incrementing field. Um, and it gets the name of the uh, field to what, to what to call it in the database from where you assigned it. And that's what the, this meta class is doing. Um, so this is before where you have to pass in the name and the type and here where it's just assumed based on the, the name you give it. Um, okay. And... Okay, um, just real quick, how um, Django sets up forms, it's in a very similar way with meta classes. Um, the basic steps are gathering all the attributes assigned to the form, um, sort them by an internal creation counter, which is a class attribute on the field object, um, and it stores the specific order that they were instantiated, so it can keep track and order them all, uh, which is really important when you don't have the field that you need to um, maintain order on. Um, 
and then it iterates over all of the parent forms um, in reverse order so it can get the order right. Um, and store it has them all in an internal list and then assigns them to uh, in the meta class. And I'll show you this is the actual forms meta class uh, in its entirety. Um, and really there's only like the most interesting piece of this is here um, where it's setting an, a new attribute of the model uh, I'm sorry of the form to something called base fields um, where it contains um, a list of all of the fields that are um, used. So meta classes don't have to be super confusing and huge. Um, like this is actually decently sane. Um, uh, get declared fields here does most of the work. Um, it's a 25 line function. 14 of those are like documentation and white space. Um, so even that's not a ton of um, work being done. Um, and what that function accomplishes, it, it gets all of the attributes, which is represented by adders, um, from all of the base classes represented in bases. Um, and then it sorts them by their internal creation counter and uh, returns them where they're set to this attribute of base fields. Um, right, so I kind of went through that a lot faster than I expected, so I'll take questions now about, about this. Yes? What do you think of meta classes as part of the language? Meta classes as part of the language? I think they're, they allow for some interesting things like this, like declarative syntax for models. Um, just like with anything, you, you can do bad things with them, and you can overuse them and use them improperly, but I think having, that's, that's not a reason not to have a really powerful portion of the language. I think types uh, in it actually handles that, so you can just do type uh, as a as a initializer and just pass that stuff in without having to call new. But right, and that actually opens it up to a lot more interesting things like dynamic model creation, dynamic form creation, uh, just by kind of playing with um, initializing 
things based on um, type. And I, I don't have a slide for that, but sorry. Just to clarify, I think what you were saying was that under, uh, dot under under new under under is actually syntax sugar for is equivalent to new syntax. Right, because what you're doing when you're invoking the type is if it were callable. Yes. So, so the question, right? So the question was, um, how does Django relate to? the new uh, NoSQL-based databases such as CouchDB and, uh, and whatnot? And the answer is it doesn't at all. Um, you have to kind of step outside of Django to the MySQL, I'm sorry, the, not the MySQL, sorry. Um, the relevant NoSQL um, Python um, libraries for those. So you wouldn't be able to do this necessarily with um, the Django ORM, um, but instead use the tools provided by that uh, non-relational database. For they are, um, but as part of the work for Django 1.2 and the uh, multi-DB branch, they are doing a lot of internal refactoring to make it possible to make not SQL backends that are that work close enough. Right. Um, so someday maybe, but right now you know. Right. And and coming up with, um, you, could, you could take this information um, of how Django uses metaclasses and, and kind of write a declarative syntax for something like a CouchDB um, thing. So in, for instance, there are a few libraries that use this declarative syntax model um, as third-party applications, uh, similar to how Django does it. One is um, uh, remote objects from, I think it's remote objects, which is a way to represent um, a REST API through as almost like it looks like a, a Django model, but when you try to access it, it does, does transparently through the REST API. Um, and also, um, Alex Gaynor's uh, Django filter uses this kind of declarative uh, method, uh, declarative syntax for defining how to set up filters on uh, Django views and things like that. Sure. So just for the computer, um, Django DB, uh, MongoDB has a Django adapter. I think that actually recently came out like a week or so ago. Right. Yeah, now the um, App Engine patch guys are working on uh, data store. Mm. So I know that like this whole topic was a really fast and and b like kind of advanced. So I I, I imagine that there's more questions than would have come up. Uh, on descriptors. Yeah. And this is this is this doesn't this is Django at all. This right. Is, I think One thing I've picked up on in forums is this is a real dislike for uh, Java idioms like getters and setters. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if this uh, is a superficial resemblance to that, to an explainer set or a get, or does it avoid some of the things that Python people generally don't like about getters and setters? I'm not I'm I've not have a lot of experience in Java. Um, 
So I'll defer to Dave. doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it's, uh, it's basically a wrap around it that um, you basically you can create your own getter function, right, and your own setter function as the get name and set name, and then you say that name equals property, and your first argument is a getter function that you're going to use second argument is a setter function, okay. and then underneath this, like when you access self dot name. What that means is that you don't have to worry about writing a getter or setter until the point that you start actually making something complicated in your get and set function. So until that point, you just have it be like, you just use self.name as a string, right? Mm -hmm. So you use that in your programming. There are all sorts of places where you access some data object, write the self.name, get self.name, all of your code, right? And you're like, well, crap, now self.name is uh, made up of first name. Then uh, you say name equals property get name set name, and then under the hood it creates that that name uh, thing is, is really a descriptor, right? Um, but that, what that means is anytime you, you access it elsewhere in the program, it's going to just transparently call your new getter and setter. So you can avoid doing that work up front and avoid a lot of avoid a lot of work. Cool. Any other questions? You could probably do it, I think, both ways. I think there's two different syntaxes for it. One's through the property syntax that Dave mentioned, and the other is to actually have an object that defines its own getters and setters. Um, that's how Django managers work, if, you, if any of you have used it, which is um, it returns a query set, which is a list of all the values you have, but you can override that descriptor and inherit from it, and then just alter like one function within it, which is the get query set function. Uh, to say, well, instead of just giving me the whole query set, give me query sets that are filtered where the blog ID is for. Um, and then that transparently just works when you access things. Um, it's interesting. The other thing I'd mention is that these are all dangerous tools a little bit, right? <laughs> so um, they're, they're very powerful, but um, there's, there's nothing worse than trying to debug someone else's code in, like, yeah. and, and finding out that um, where you thought there was an attribute there is instead a function that calls five other functions that does something
With great power comes great responsibility and all that. Right. So the, not to get too far off topic, the, the main uh, debugging tool that I use is PDB, or some variant thereof, which is an interactive debugger where you just insert a breakpoint in your code and it stops, and you're in the code, and you can go up frames and in frames and step into functions, and um, it's it's really advanced. The Eclipse has its own debugger. I'm not sure if it uses PDB, um, but Eclipse and I think Wing. I think you can also hook up Emacs to do that too. Okay, uh, so yeah, just two more things. One is if this stuff is actually interesting to you, I say you should get the Pro Django book, which is back here um, from APRESS, and it is the best resource for learning, especially Django based things. It's a, it's a book that's entirely dedicated to telling you how Django works from a Python perspective. and it's infamous chapter two, tells you about meta classes, descriptors, uh, decorate every every advanced Python concept is covered in that, at least as far as I know, um, and it's a fantastic resource. And actually, a lot of the information that I've covered is also covered in there, but in much better detail. Um, and but uh, just because you said get it, don't go run back there and steal it because we might want to come back here at some point. So. Right, uh, <laughs> buy that book. Um, I actually have two copies, so I might loan you one. Um, and then the other thing is that I encourage anyone who's interested in a topic to talk to Dave and accidentally volunteer for this, because I we were sitting at lunch and I was like, it'd be really great if someone talked about advanced Django and Python stuff. And he's like, great, when are you giving the talk? <laughs> um, but it's actually uh, been a great resource for me to dive really into Django internals and how meta classes work for that. Um, and I've actually come away knowing a lot more about some of the internals of Django. So getting in over your head is a great way to learn a lot. So I would encourage people to do that. All right. Uh, I think that's, that's all. Thanks. So I'm going to talk about an interesting app I wrote this weekend. Um, Maybe I might talk about this interesting program I did this weekend. Um, based on the Bottle framework, um, which is a interesting um, micro framework written in Python. Um, if I recall, it's heavily uh, influenced by Sinatra. If any of you Ruby guys know about Sinatra, um, I could have just completely made that up though, so I don't actually know Sinatra. Um, So this, it's, a, it's a web app called whatismyencoding.com, um, and you can pass in a string or a URL. Um, in this case, we'll try the Japanese Google. And in theory, it should tell you that it's not in ASCII. <laughs> and, and, the main, and the main impetus for this was I was debugging some Latin 1 to UTF-8 
uh, issues. Um, so I had this word cafe with, uh, yeah, so this is in Shift-JIS, which is the encoding for Japanese stuff. Um, and the, we had cafe, which was C-A-F, like, slash X, slash some other weirdness. Um, and I had to, like, manually do searches and found, like, PHP conversion code that I had to translate. Um, so this is the entire program. It's, uh, yeah, basically what's on this. Can you guys see that? Yes? Um, in the index thing, it's bound to, like, the slash URL. Um, at the top here, if it's a get, it just returns this homepage template. If it's a post, it will determine whether it's a URL based on some, like, really lame, does this have HTTP at the front kind of regex. <laughs> uh, if it is, it reads in the URL. If it doesn't, it uh, escapes the string um, using this uh, care debt, which is the, um, I think it's like universal decode. It's from Mark, um, I think it's Mark Pilgrim who did it, um, Universal Encoding Detector, um, which tells you it, this is like 99% sure, this is Shift-JIS, or something along those lines. Um, so really, that's all the work, but this is just like a website to get it. Um, one interesting thing is, I had I was getting back a string when I passed in an encoded um, XML thing. It was, it was returning like escaped, um, like slash slash XCE. Um, so it looked like... Um, Something like that, um, where the real thing was, this was what I was looking for, was not, not that you can see that in the back, of course, but um, it was basically returning double slashes because it was escaping the um, string, like the XM, uh, UTF-8 character, I think is the word I'm looking for. Um, and to do that, I was trying to do like regex replaces for slash slash to turn it into slash, which didn't work, and then I tried like just removing all the slashes, which did work, but was not at all what I wanted. Um, and it turned out that the, the piece of code that I was looking for was this encoding encoding string decode string escape, which takes an escaped UTF-8 uh, string and, like, unescapes it, uh, which actually took, like, 30 minutes. Of, it took more work to do that than it did for anything else in this application. Um, so that's Bottle. It's actually pretty cool. Um, and... That's it. All right, I'm here to talk about decorations. Decorations are kind of like decorators, but they're slightly different. They're great. Yay! This is me. Yay! I love decorations, and you should too, because decorations let you not repeat yourself. They let you make really great, powerful abstractions, and they let you write really simple, clean code. So let's look at a decoration, similar to the one we looked at before, and it is not pretty. Um, it's got a lot of stuff. Um, we'll take it apart in a moment. Um, this is how you use it down here. I wanted to find some syntax first. I'm going to call this the decoratee funk, because it is being decorated by the decoration. Um, it is being decorated by the decorator. But what is the decoration? Well, the decoration is part of the decorator. It's a very specific part of the decorator. It's the part of the decorator that tells you what you want to do. In this case, the decorator returns, has a decoration that asserts that the return type is of the type that was passed into the decorator. Not too complicated. Most of it is cruft. All you really care about is the decoration. Now, what is the decoration really doing? Let's define it in code. Just as I said before, we have a returns. It is a post-decoration, which means it does something 
as you mentioned, I think, someone in your presentation, does something after our function, our decorate t, executes. And what it does is it asserts that the result is of a type. Yay! So. What are decorations? Decorations, first, decorations.py is a library that solves two problems. Um, first problem is that there are two com common kinds of decorators, as again you mentioned, and we did not agree on this. <laughs> you just have to mention there are two kinds of decorators. There are the decorators that execute before your function executes, and there are decorators that execute after it executes, after your function executes. Then there's the evolution of decorators. As we saw before, or just now, um, the decoration returns actually took arguments, which were types, and then decorated after those, taking those arguments, another function. Um, a lot of times you start without arguments, a, decor a decorator without arguments, and you need to move to a decorator with arguments, and that makes things ugly. So the two um, kind of decorators are pre and post. Um, the evolution of decorators, a lot of times you start with my decorator, and you move to my decorator with arguments, which is very, very bad. It's bad for two reasons, again. First, extending the decoration naively breaks all of the other decorations. So if you extend decoration from not having arguments to having arguments, um, you then need to make sure that all of your decorations have arguments, because you need another closure in there. It gets ugly. Second. It requires very intricate changes. You need to insert another function that kind of creates another scope boundary um, because you're then really invoking a function twice. You're invoking once when you pass in the arguments, get back a decorator, and you're invoking again when you're passing in the decorate t. Um, these are the problems that are solved with pre-decoration. Um, pre-decoration is defined in decorations.py. It takes arguments, keyword arguments, the decorators are parameters or arguments, and the decorators keyword arguments. So, for example, foo is defined as a pre-decoration and then takes cdef, which are the arguments. Or it could be defining, or it could be decorating paths, taking keyword parameters, or sorry, decorator parameters and arguments, both. Or it could be decorating, well, this is, these are the two examples. It could be, then when we invoke bar, these guys are going to be passing here. The arguments are going to be set to this. The decorator parameters are missing because bar does not have any decorator parameters. Or we could call baz, passing in yet different things. And uh, this were a longer talk, I can go through all the examples. Um, but baz will pass in these guys, set this to the arguments, these to the decorator parameters, and the keyword arguments and the decorator keyword arguments work similarly to these keyword arguments. But let's not worry too much. Let's worry about real-world examples. In real-world examples, a lot of times my Django views will take get variables, and you get this kind of crufty code again, where you're repeating yourself. If you define something here, you need to find a name here. In reality, you only want one name. You want the name of your variable, a lot of times, will be the same as the name of the get variable passed in the HTTP request. So we write this accepts get decoration, which I'll skip over really quickly. But you can define something as having accepts get to take some get var, other get var, you will use the inspect package to inspect, get these things as strings, and pull them out if they match get variables. Another decoration, redirects to refer, even simpler. It is a decoration, but it should be a post-decoration. Similarly, all it does is it calls your function, and instead of returning whatever the function returned, ignore that and return the refer. That way, whenever your view is called, it'll automatically redirect back to the refer, as the um, title implies. Of course, you can stack these. And when you stack these, or not when you stack these, but when you have post arguments, sometimes you'll notice you'll have foos that are very similar. 
And in order to do that, you can extend your post arguments to take a regex, group them together in dictionary, the end. <laughs>
one category is, well, yeah, as I say, I can't hope to really uh, provide any uh, actual information here, but uh, one category is the, um, uh, the, uh, the server namespace category, where uh, it's the actual components. And that's essentially the file system structure, except that you can mount, you can essentially do cross-mounting in, inside this file system. So if you look at my uh, internationalization uh, tutorial, what you do is you put all the, all the stuff that's related to the language in one place, and then you can remount stuff into that place to get a new language. So it's essentially using the, uh, the tree structure, which also corresponds to the Python namespace, the Python module namespace, and also corresponds to the URL namespace. Those are all grouped together in one namespace. Then in addition to that, you have the JavaScript, CSS, uh, and uh, cookies, and all this, the client-side namespace is a separate namespace. And those are all managed together in the WIF, in the WIF structure. It's not really a, 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 a but anyway, please please take a look at this. I'd like to talk about it for about four more hours. Did you say did you say your name? Aaron Waters. So I'm gonna just do a little bit of a shameless plug and a little bit of just kind of illustrating what you can do with some. Django stuff as well as some Python libraries. So I recently put out a little side project called, originally called Wikitales, but none of those, uh, that domain wasn't actually available, so it's just Wtales now. Um, and the idea is, if you ever heard of uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure books, it's kind of like that online, but uh, all the stories are user-generated. And if you get to the end of a branch in the story, and you have an idea how to continue it, you can. Basically, it's usually generated a chapter at a time. And eventually we can... Uh-oh. The interwebs went away. That's not a good sign. That's JavaScript. <laughs> if only. Uh, let's see. There we go. All right. So um, this is a Django application. Um... One of the neat things I'm doing here, so uh, you'll kind of see if you go in. So to get some content in there, I just took some public domain stuff and sliced it up. Um, so somewhat naturally, these things are going to look like trees, and trees are really horrible to put in a database and deal with. Uh, luckily, there's already a solution out there called Django MPTT. Um, yeah, multiple pre-order tree traversal, um, which is basically a way of computing all the hard stuff about doing... Uh, depth-wise operations in trees with a relational database. Um, so it's all kind of organized like that. So if I wanted to generate the, um, like if I was already at a few stories down, huh, the data's gone away. I think the internet, interweb's coming and going, which is unfortunate. Um, but so, in theory, text would be showing up where the white is. There we go. Um, so, you know, if I get get down and down and down, and if I wanted to regenerate the whole story up to this point, normally if you just did a tree naively in a SQL database, that would be really expensive to do. With MPTT, it's a really simple thing, because I can just say, I want everything from tree X, and it comes right out. Um, so there's some plans that I have for this to do stuff like um, publish it as an EPUB, 
document or something so you can take it offline, so on and so forth. Uh, some other stuff that's going on that's kind of neat here. You can see how there's um, the relatively smart hyphenation. Um, I don't actually remember the name of the library, which kind of is the point of this talk. But I'm using a Python library to figure out where those hyphen characters go. Um, it's actually, there's a lot more in the HTML. Um, it's basically everywhere where they possibly could be, and it's up to the browser to decide whether or not to display them. Um, but it, it does some stuff to based on, it really only works for English, um, but it does some stuff based on the way English works to try and guess where it makes sense to put the hyphenation. It's not always right because English is kind of messed up, but it tries. Um, all the fancy stuff is happening in JavaScript. Uh, what else do I use in this? Um, otherwise, a lot of it's stock um, Django. Um, also, I'm trying to think. I think I use Django registration for this. Oh, no, here's something I'm doing. Uh, this is Django Uniform. Uh, so if you're ever doing uh, sites to be accessible, uh, namely by somebody like with a screen reader who's blind, um, you have this funny problem of the only way, the not painful way to do forms that are laid out nicely in HTML is tables. Apparently, however, tables make it completely unreadable and unusable with a screen reader. So Uniform is kind of this thing somebody, I forget who I should credit it. If you do a Google search for Uniform, well, he did the, that Django part of it. There's a thing out there called Uniform for doing div-based, um, like semantically accurate layout of forms that looks nice, um, based on just HTML, and CSS, and JavaScript. And PyDanny, uh, Danny Greenfield, uh, made a Django extension that lets you handle a lot of this stuff, which is pretty nice. So I'm using that. Um, it also lets you kind of do some neat stuff as far as defining more elements of your form um, in code, so you can reuse it and deal with it in programmatic ways, uh, which are kind of nice. And for the Python people, since we always like to show this off, uh, of course, it's Django Admin for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, so this is all completely automatically generated based on my models. Um, I haven't really done much customization here, but you could. Um, but like, so if I wanted to go in and look at uh, stuff, I could look at something else that's really nice is Django DB log uh, as I run out of time. Um, so you can actually see this is all the errors that are happening over time. So these are, instead of just getting emailed or going on, it also does really nice batching of errors. So instead of just seeing a log with hundreds of things, there's just one, and it says it happened a hundred times. So that's it. Um, there's not questions in Lightning Talks, but feel free to ask me afterwards if you have any questions. And that's my time. My name is Andrew Gashevitz. Um, I've been using Python for, I don't know, throwing a brain out there eight years maybe. Um, today is December 15th. <laughs> so the, the overview of this is <laughs> uh, I'm going to give a demo of a chat app that I built on uh, the tornado, uh, tornado web server and, uh, and web framework um, and then go through a little bit about it and follow up with uh, little thing called Redis that is uh, pretty neat for building applications. Um, so let's go take a look at this demo. Um, I guess I should note that this is about the uh, Tornado web framework, which I, I guess I did say. Um, so So I already logged in here. So basically what happens is I, I logged in here and 
Um, hey, let's index them. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. And here we go. So I'm going to log in as Andre F. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's not using actual authentication, but it's just there for um, you know, an interesting nature. But so what, what you'll see is that if I send a message, it'll show up here. And this is using Tornado to, to do this. And then, you know, who is myself, my current status, on Twitter, which you should follow me on if I didn't already mention that. Uh, and then, of course, it works the same way here. I can do who is APG was, does that. And I, I can also do a private message. Um, and hopefully that worked. That's the part that actually probably doesn't work. Oh, it worked. Excellent. So anyway, um, if, if we had an internet connection, uh, that everybody else could make use of, I would invite you to come and talk and break it. Um, but we unfortunately don't have a connection here, so um, let's go back. Uh, it is web based, but it's the local network, so. All right, so anyway. All right. I'm going to not use this and instead can people still see this? <laughs> Top right. Oh yeah. All right, perfect. Much better. Um, so I showed you the chat demo. It's about 250 lines of code. Uses the Tornado web server. Uh, it stores data in Redis, which I alluded to, uh, which is a key value store. And the only other exciting thing is that it's a little bit of an extension to the demos directory chat application that comes with Tornado. Um, and unfortunately, you can't join me. Um, so I guess uh, talk about asynchronous versus uh, synchronous I/O. So Basically, in blocking I.O., um, which is what you would get when you have something like Django or, or something, um, Apache, for instance, which probably doesn't use blocking I.O. internally, but irregardless. Um, so you basically wait to read the entire data. Like You open up a, a file descriptor, you say read, and you wait until you get all of the data and read it. Uh, or at least all the data that you requested. But uh, there's benefits to this because it's really easy to read. So if you want the lines of a file in Python, you just say, hey, open this file and give me all the lines. And then you got all the lines, even though you may have had to wait to get that. But it's kind of a big waste of time when you have a CPU-bound application. Um, and it's kind of a waste of time uh, when you're serving or trying to serve lots and lots of web pages um, because you can do something during that and stop wasting processes. Uh, so basically, if you're at a train station, you wait. Same sort of deal. Um, and if you look at I/O latency, so you know it's not just that you go to the disk. If you go to the network, then you know it's the same sort of deal. You have to wait. Um, but you know this is kind of interesting here because L1 cache, the processor, super fast. L2 cache, a little bit less fast, but super fast. RAM, 
even less fast, but still super fast. Go to your SATA disk, even though it's like the top of the line, fastest disk ever three years ago. Um, it's still super, super slow. And then if you have to go to the internet, it's goddamn awful slow. Sorry if I offended anybody. But anyway, the point is that it's super slow to have to go to the internet, um, as we just saw with everybody else's attempts at using the internet. So um, really, all that time, it's all the time in the world, and you can be doing other things. So non-blocking I.O. Um, so do something useful while you wait. And when I.O. completes or hits some milestone, just take it into consideration. So probably a lot of you are familiar with Ajax if you've done web development. So what you do, you post to some endpoint. Uh, maybe you post data and you give it a callback function. And you say, when this data arrives back here, call this function and use the response as the argument. Uh, and then you can do whatever you want with, with what comes back. Uh, process it as JSON or process it as XML or just spit it out or whatever. Um, and, you know, smart people um, who invented Ajax probably uh, also invented, you know, this sort of non-blocking I.O primitives that uh, we see in operating systems. And um, so the question is, how do you know when I.O. is done? Well, you either ask your operating system who you can say, hey, maybe, maybe I want to listen to these events. So when this is done, just tell me about it, and then I'll take care of it. And like, that's something like uh, a signal handler. In POSIX systems, um, say you want to listen to signals, or actually you don't want to listen to them. You want to uh, get called back when someone hits control C at the terminal. That's, you know, that's one way the operating system alerts you if something happened. Um, or you can just ask yourself. And, you know, if you've ever seen The Simpsons, you've probably seen the episode where Bart, Lisa, and Maggie, well, Maggie, I guess, was probably just going, you know, making noises or whatever. But they're going on vacation and, you know, it's, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And, you know, you can ask the question, do any of these file descriptors have data for me to read yet? Uh, and this is normally implemented as a so-called event loop. You're sitting there in a while loop, or I guess you could use an infinite for loop with just two semicolons, um, or whatever. And what you do is you make these make calls to these system calls, and depending on the operating system that you are using, one of these are available. And if you're on Windows, I don't know, but you're probably screwed. <laughs> um, so... This is uh, an echo server. Actually, is it an echo server? I don't remember. I think it's an echo server um, that basically just sits there. And you can see it's got this loop. While running, uh, I'm going to call select and give it a timeout of 0.1 seconds. So if any data is available on any of these, these uh, file objects, uh, since we've abstracted away all of the internal details and are using a Python implementation of it, um, then, you know, do something. If, if the thing that was act upon was the server, uh, the server socket that we defined right up here, uh, then accept the connection and, you know, append the <coughs> client socket, the, the socket back to the user, uh, to the list of inputs that we have, because we can read from that. Uh, and then likewise, if, if it's just standard in, then, you know, read a new line. Um, if we receive something from um, the user sending stuff on the client end, then just send it back to them. 
Um, and it's, it's pretty simple. Um, you, can, you can imagine lots of other interesting things that you could do with that. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Tornado. Um, so Tornado. Uh, so Tornado is a non-blocking web server that was written by FriendFeed. So FriendFeed found that they wanted to do real-time stuff. Um, and they looked at Twisted and said, this doesn't really fit what we're looking for. It may be scalable, but we can make something better, faster, easier to use. Um, so they built uh, the Tornado web server, um, and they use, they built like a, a WebPy-ish sort of framework on top of it. Uh, and it includes all these things. I'm not going to, you know, iterate over those. Um, but it includes a lot of stuff out of the box. Um, so this is a simple Hello World application. Um, you create an HTTP server, attach the application to it. And this really doesn't have to, to be an application that derives from request handler uh, by any means, or derives from application, rather. It can, it can be anything that accepts a, basically uh, an object, a request object. Um, so when they brought this out, um, one of the interesting things they said, they, they showed this graph and they said, look, if we have Tornado running with four front ends behind Nginx, we can serve this many requests a second. It's like, what, 8,213? And then they said, and if we have one single-threaded uh, Tornado um, front end, we can serve 3,353. Of course, this is a, a Hello World application, and it's four cores, and it's still pretty awesome. But, you know, it's kind of a contrived, look at me, Mom, you know, I, I'm awesome example. That said, like I said, it's still fast. So. <laughs> um, so one of the things that was in that long list of uh, things that Tornado has out of the box is this idea of an asynchronous web client. Um, and I've maybe spelled it right. I don't know. Yeah, I guess probably. So the idea is you can build this handler, and you can throw this decorator here, Tornado Web Asynchronous. And what that basically says, at the end of this post uh, method, um, you can return, but I'm not going to close the connection. And what that allows you to do is do something like here. You're, you're calling a, a callback, and um, in this case, I'm going to call this get Twitter user um, with the argument that I passed in. This is implemented the slash who is, by the way. Or actually, this is the login, but the slash who is is the same, same sort of thing. Um, and then when that operation completes, this callback, this quote-unquote Ajax sort of do something, and when the data all comes back, call this function, um, it's going to render a template uh, and finish if that login failed. It, the login basically is, does that user exist? If it doesn't exist, then obviously you can't possibly log in, even if we're doing fake Twitter authentication. Um, so, and since that comes back as JSON, Tornado also has this escape procedure, or this is escape module, which has JSON decode, JSON encoding. Uh, I think it uses simple JSON underneath, but it wraps it up all nicely. Uh, and then the other interesting thing is it sets secure cookies. So, um, right now, actually, Django has, um, there's a proposal for doing, like, signed cookies, which would be cookies that you can't tamper with. Um, and they're trying to muster out like how the API looks and 
whether or not it should be enabled by default. And I'm not sure what the status on that is, but. Point being, Tornado supports it out of the box. So F you, Django. Um, tornado <laughs> rocks. Uh, <laughs> and I actually use Django a lot, so I'm not really saying F you to Django because it's awesome. But um, And then the, <laughs> the other thing is we have this uh, DB set, which will become a little bit apparent. Um, and this is just putting the data into Redis, which I alluded to as being the data store for this. Uh, and then... So this one here, it derived from this uh, base handler class. And, excuse me, what you normally do in Tornado, it's kind of, kind of wonky at first, actually. Um, you basically build a base handler and all of the things that you're going to need in all of your request handlers. Um, like, for instance, for here, this is how you implement authentication. If, basically, if it returns none, um, then the user is not logged in. If it doesn't return none and it returns something, then it, it sets the um, current user property of the request handler, which would be this whole class, the instance of the class. So instance of the class dot current user would equal you know the output of get current user. Uh, and that's how their, their login works. Um, but you can see that I'm calling or creating a new async HTTP client, uh, fetching this thing here. <laughs> don't look ahead though I don't want you to look ahead uh, <laughs> and uh, the only other magical aspect of this is that this async callback um, method here just wraps it all up so if, if for instance this 404 this uh, response I think it would probably throw a 404 on the actual request uh, because it failed or if there's an exception it'll throw a 500 error it just tries to abstract that away so you don't have to worry about it. So the templating language um, is kind of interesting and kind of annoying, but there's probably a way to, to fix the annoyances with it that um, I just haven't discovered yet um, or haven't looked for yet, maybe. So it uses a similar idiom as uh, Django, only the, the stuff that's in here is actual, well, with the exception of like these blocks, here um, are actual Python code. And uh, the block obviously is not Python code, but um, like for instance, for loops and if statements, they just use the, the actual Python code. So you would literally write for, you know, x in n, um, do whatever, and then close it off with end. And these don't have to be indented nicely. Tornado, when it lexes this and you know parses it, will spit out. The templating language doesn't actually. Um, well, it has some interesting properties. So the question, for the benefit of the people online, is: uh, Is the template language asynchronous? And the answer, of course, I just mentioned, is not. Uh, there's other things that aren't actually asynchronous in the framework, too, which is kind of a little wonky, I understand. Um, but anyway, the, the, template, the, the templating language will read the, the template once, uh, or the, the parser will parse it once, and then create executable Python code. So it, it at least does that much. Um, so it doesn't you know, do asynchronous I.O. to read it, but it does um, 
compile it once and save it off. And actually, Django just landed a feature where it's doing something similar now. Um, and the thing that I alluded to that this is annoying is because if you're working in the development mode, um, every time you change your template, you basically have to restart, uh, which is a big annoying pain in the butt. But anyway. Um, and the other thing is that since it's just compiling down to actual Python code, uh, you don't get the, the whole, this variable doesn't exist, but I'm just going to ignore it that you get in other template languages. Um, you actually do have name errors and attribute errors and all the other errors that you can, you can get, um, which is just something that you have to, to deal with, I guess. I guess sometimes you have to ask yourself, um, why do I not, you know, define the variables that I'm referencing? But obviously, there's cases where um, that's desirable. Yes. Is there anything that you can do to see that? So uh, the question is, can is there anything that you can do to kind of see that ahead of time? Um, not that I know of. The framework is pretty young, um, and you know, maybe maybe something like that would be desirable. And you're welcome to write it, of course, and, and share it on the mailing list. I know that's the, the awesome open source answer that everybody gives. Well, it doesn't exist, but it's open source. Go write it. But uh, that's the best answer I can give you, unfortunately. Um, and it doesn't have any fancy template custom tags or filters or anything. You just pass the function that you want to call. Um, easy peasy. So. Here's a, a example in action, and uh, so this static URL is defined, uh, just comes for free. Um, which, if you set up a static path in your application settings, uh, it'll offset that. Um, the current user gets put in there for free. Escape, which does, um, you know, pretty smart escaping uh, of things that aren't actually XML. Uh, although it doesn't escape quotes right now, um, someone just brought that up on the mailing list, and here you can see, you know, our awesome for loops. Um, it has, uh, you know, uh, internationalization built up or built in with the, you know, kind of idiomatic standard of underscore. And the other thing is that when you're doing post forms and you set the um, I don't remember what the, the setting is called, but you can basically do cross-site request forgery protection right away, and it comes out of the box. But you have to include the input. Um, so I did mention that there's no sort of extensions to the template language. Um, but what you can do, and these are kind of cool, is UI modules. Um, so you can define a bunch of UI modules, um, which are basically just a class that derives from UI module that has a render method. Uh, and it takes these are variable names, or it doesn't you don't have to take variables at all. Uh, and then basically the idea is that you just render a string or return some string. Uh, and it's surprisingly uh, useful. And well, it's not surprisingly useful. I mean that's pretty obvious, but um, it's surprisingly powerful when you consider the fact that you can't extend the language. You can do pretty much anything else that you want to do. Um, and these come for free in the modules um, 
uh, namespace that gets attached when you render a string by default or render a template by default. Um, so this is what you know a UI modules template would look like, um, and this is you know a template that actually uses one, and it's basically you're just calling it. Um, so database support, uh, it's pretty lacking officially, um, <laughs> and you know they provide some MySQL support. Um, it's just a you know, basically a wrapper class that says, here's a, a nice interface you can call query and things like that. Uh, but it blocks. It's, it's like the templating language. Uh, it does not do asynchronous I.O. And the reason for that is kind of annoying. Um, so the idea is blocking locally is not the end of the world. And I'll let you read that quote if you want to. Um, but... Basically, their solution to this problem is just use multiple front ends. You know, you have four cores, use all of them. You're bound to not um, hit contention if there's, you know, multiple processes running. Um, and, you know, in a way, they have a point. Because um, if you're trying to build something with MySQL at some scalable level uh, in real time, maybe you have other problems. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously you can use it, but like it, it shouldn't be your your you know only persistent store, obviously. Um, but you know, so it, it's a limitation, but it's a hard problem to solve because none of the MySQL drivers are for Python, and there's probably one of them take advantage of any sort of asynchronous I/O. So um, it's not the end of the world, but it's something to be worried about. And if you really have this problem where you're like, I have to get every last ounce of processor uh, and you know wait on every sort of I/O, um, you can put an HTTP proxy in front of your MySQL database like DBSlayer, which is also pretty awesome. And then your problem solved because you can use the asynchronous HTTP client. Um, and as an aside, Twisted, the other big uh, Python event-driven framework, just uses threads. So. They basically say, okay, well, we're not going to, to take this problem and try to, to fix the, the main cause of the problem that's causing everybody all this, this uh, stuff. We're just going to throw it in a thread, and then when the processor or when the operating system sees fit, it can schedule the thread and, you know, give you back your, your resources. Um, sure, I should be... I should be fine. Um, so, and actually, you know, if you if you look at that code above that I, I showed with uh, callbacks, it's kind of messy anyway. So, you know, blocking isn't that bad. Um, but as an aside, something like inline callbacks from Twisted or Deferred Generator is certainly on my wish list. So, if you want to solve that problem in Tornado, please do, and then I will be be forever grateful for you or to you. Um, so, anyway, that looks like this. So, it, it basically uses yield to um, return to this execution point the next time this function is called. Um, so basically this sum function it becomes the callback um, and yeah. And it should be noted that it, someone should really do a lightning talk on all of the awesome things that you can do with yield. So next month someone, anyone volunteers? No? Alright, Andre, yes, alright, perfect. Uh, so how can you write your own asynchronous stuff? Well, they provide you IO Stream, which has a simple interface. Um, 
you can override write read bytes and read until, uh, and it automatically knows about Tornado's internal I/O loop, which makes it pretty easy. Uh, there's an example um, that you can follow in the source code, actually. So we're going to change gears now. So that was Tornado, yay! Everybody's excited. Um, <laughs> and you know, I wasn't originally supposed to to give this talk. Uh, I was going to give a talk about Redis. Um, but then David asked me to give a full talk because the other speaker kind of backed down, I guess, last minute. So I decided to use Redis in the demo, and now I'm obligated to explain it. So I've been trying to kind of weed my way into that, huh? So take that, but, and thanks, Dave. <laughs> so Redis, um, written by Salvatore Sanfilippo, who is this Italian guy, and you can tell by, if you follow his uh, Twitter stream, you should follow him on Twitter, too. He's pretty interesting and this is a pretty cool project and it's going to be huge. Um, <laughs> uh, you can tell that he's Italian because he, his English is not the greatest but it's, it's getting better and the more he interacts with English speakers like you, uh, the better his English will get. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, it's the definitive Italian sort of, yeah. So um, anyway, so Redis is an advanced key value store. Uh, it's similar to memcached, but it actually will save data out asynchronously um, every now and then, or you can call a save um, sort of thing and get that going. Uh, but it also supports other more rich data types, sets, lists, ordered sets, um, and it has atomic operations on those. So you can do push, pop, inc, set, like set union, set intersection, uh, all atomically. Right now it's entirely an in-memory database, but that will change in the future. They're kind of working on some uh, sort of virtual memory style uh, implementations. So the protocol is actually pretty interesting because it just uses English verbs. Um, so you can basically connect to Telnet um, and as an example, so set hello5 uh, which is the length of what you want to set it to world comes back okay say get hello, it says, oh, that's five bytes long, world. Um, and then you can see these other things. Increment, um, and there's a decrement, obviously, uh, I mentioned. Uh, but again, like I said, those are atomic. So even if there's three people connected that all want to increment uh, x, um, even if for some reason there's some problem in Redis that Another thread gets rescheduled. Actually, there wouldn't be another thread, but if something happened, like one of them was waiting on I.O. and the other one was not, um, X would only ever be incremented. It would incre be incremented three times. Anyway, uh, that's a bad explanation of uh, atomic stuff, but whatever. Um, so how do you model something like a chat uh, application in a key value store? Well. Uh, basically, the idea is that um, you take advantage of all of the data structures that Redis provides you. Um, so, for instance, uh, you want to get a message ID um, because every message needs an identification. Um, you just basically take a key, message ID, for instance, and increment it every time before you create a new message. Uh, and then, say, for instance, you have a new uh, message and you want it to show up on the timeline for everybody, well, just decode that message as, you know, JSON and push it onto the timeline. Um, 
you know, if you want to implement private messages like I did there, you can just create, you know, messages private sent to the sender. But you kind of also have to do messages private received recipient for some other reasons, uh, which I'm not going to go into. Um, but, you know, basically the limitation is that you can't really query against values, you can only query against keys. Uh, there's lots more explanation about how to model data, so I'll defer to that on the Redis website. Um, and, you know, if you want to store users, it's the same deal. You just store JSON encoded string uh, by the username. You might want to use the user ID to save some bytes, but, you know, whatever. No, this, the notation you're using is key colon value? The that's, whole key is users. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, the whole key is users colon username. What would the value for that be? The value would be the JSON encoded object of what a user actually is, in this case. It doesn't have to be that, it could be whatever. Um, the keys are arbitrary. I'm, I'm using uh, colons only as a separator for, you know, ease of looking at. Um, so, the, the things to get out of this are, you kind of have to normal, or denormalize your data to, to do this sort of thing, to store it in a, like, a key value store. And uh, you have to duplicate your data in a lot of cases to, to make it quick. Um, but the really good news is that, you know, this is incredibly fast. Um, so on my slow MacBook, um, actually probably equivalent to this guy right here, uh, with a bunch of stuff open, including Firefox, which I'm sure just took up 30% of the processor the entire time because that's what Firefox likes to do, um, I get about 17,000 requests per second that it can store or retrieve three bytes of payload, which is pretty fast. Um, and, you know, the... Oh, that was, that was writing, rather. Uh, and if I want to just get data, it's 22,000. And that was, as I said, on, um, on a MacBook 2 Core 2 Duo, with a crap load of other stuff running. Uh, so I'll defer to questions. In the back. So the question is, uh, do those benchmarks include flushes to disk? No. Um, you probably will you know, pay a little bit of a penalty. And um, you can actually set up this config file to um, save it at more increments or like faster increments. Uh, there's a bunch of like config options that I, I'm not really aware of at the moment, but I'm sure that you could set it up and kind of test that. I'm guessing you'd probably suffer like 200 or 2,000 operations or something in similar conditions. So uh, Redis is indeed single-threaded, but the um, the interesting thing is it uses event-driven I.O. Yay! So, <laughs> so essentially, um, the way it gets around this whole, you know, atomic operations thing is that the process, or the, the operating system can never really schedule it um, unless some other, you know, signal handler um, happens, um, which would call back to some other portion of the code. So, basically, you've by doing that, you have you know inline operations that you know are going to happen, like inline. Uh, and since there's only um, one writer to that data, you can kind of guarantee that it's going to be atomic. Um, 
But the other limit, or the other thing, is that though you can't uh, share data between multiple clients, um, it doesn't mean that if you have you know 64 gigabytes of memory, which is not uncommon these days, it's certainly cheap enough to do that. Um, you could just have multiple you know Redis instance open or you know running. So just connect to one of those using some sort of consistent hashing or you know some other thing like that. Um, but you can't share the data, so you have to maintain all these open connections. Uh, but that's that's kind of the recommended way to scale, just multiple instances using sharding or um, using consistent hashing. Uh, the other thing that I should note that I didn't put in the slides is that um, if you're really worried about your data, you can set up uh, like master-slave replication. Um, and it's like one line in the config. You just point it to the other server, and it'll, it'll dump all that stuff um, as it writes it. Which is pretty cool. Yes. The um, async web framework you say might forget. Tornado. Tornado. Um, how active is that for Arnold? So it's actually um, the question is how active is Tornado? Uh, there's actually a pretty active mailing list, um, but there aren't that many commits to to the GitHub repository, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because there's a lot of people that are obviously interested in it. Um, but the the Facebook guys, well, they're now Facebook guys. They seem to be busy with other other things. So there's a few bug fixes now and then, um, but hopefully it'll start picking up again. Uh, that I don't know. Uh, question for the benefit of the people online. Hi. Um, have the tornado guys tried using it with Stackless? Uh, I don't know. You could ask the mailing list. That's an interesting uh, question. The reason I'm asking is. Pretty sure there's no way to implement a WSGI interface to that without breaking without blocking. Right. So, but you could if you had Stackless. Mm -hmm. So, uh, basically, what what the question person is asking uh, <laughs> is, uh, if you had Stackless, you could implement something uh, that would conform to WSGI. Um, but yeah, I mean that that's true. Um, you can't really run this on, you can't run the, you could run the framework in WSGI, uh, but you couldn't run the web server. So like the, the recommended way to do that is put it behind Nginx. Um, and actually, the latest release of Tornado doesn't actually uh, implement the full, <coughs> excuse me, HTTP spec uh, exactly, so you kind of have to rely on, on Nginx at this point. Which is kind of odd in a limitation. Yes. So, how neatly does can I make use of Tornado within a Django application if I just want to use it for the uh, access to external uh, server? Um, so, uh, question is how can you use this with Django? And the question is, or the answer to the question is really it's kind of hard uh, because if you're deploying Django using WSGI. Um, which is a standard thing these days. There isn't really a way to, to handle like long polling. Um, it's kind of make a request, expect a response right away. Um, so the way to actually use this with Django would be to um, use both side by side. So basically um, use it to handle special views that might need. Exactly, yeah. So. You know, one possible solution would be to, um, within Django, add something to, uh, you know, some sort of queuing framework, like messaging framework, 
and then maybe you have um, you know something that notifies the the server or the tornado server hey there's something here um, that they're calling back to but this is what they're requesting so, you know I mean there's multiple ways to do it that's probably not a good idea to do it that way but off the cuff that's you know <laughs> Sean. Kind of related to that, something you might want to look into is there's a relatively new plugin for Nginx uh, that lets you do kind of long polling stuff where when the browser establishes the long polling connection to the Nginx front end, it, the Nginx server then exposes a private internal URL that your application can, can then post to. Um, and basically, you do this loop of once you know that URL exists, you do whatever you got to do in the background, you post to it, and then it sends the data back over the long polling connection. Right. So uh, what Sean was saying is that Nginx provides uh, sort of like a reverse uh, proxy sort of thing where you make a, a long polling connection to Nginx. Uh, Nginx sets up a reverse URL, which another application could call back to and post data to this, to send back to the user. Um, that's another option. Uh, maybe your Django app creates some sort of job and, you know, I'm not sure how uh, yeah, Nginx does it, but it, I'm guessing it sets a header and says this is the URL to call back to. So you include that as the payload to the job that you create and say anything that you want to write back, write back to here. So one more question. What are you using on the client side to set up the long So uh, yes, the JavaScript that is there, it's just using jQuery. It just makes a connection, uh, just waits for it, or waits for you know, a response. When it gets a response, it just calls back again. It's nothing fancy. It's like the naive implementation of Comet. But it's surprisingly effective, actually. So, all right. Thank you.